1: Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Welcome to Group Text, everyone. I am really excited today because we're going to be talking about something that I find fascinating and know very little about. Uh, psychopharmacology or pharmacology. We'll get into which is the correct title for it. I have no idea about any of this, but I have an incredible panel of experts with me. Of course, I have Sabrina Miller, who is not an expert in this, but you know, my backup. She's got my back. Welcome Hamilton Morris, who is from the TV show Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, And you are a proponent of all of this psychopharmacology and pharmacology and have exposed a lot of people to the science behind it and the experience behind it on your TV show. Brad Berge, spokesperson and director of communication for MAPS, which we'll get into. And David Cole, a friend of mine. And I'm going to just intro him as a civilian, a friend, and let's just call you a
3: partaker. Welcome, (laughs) everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa.
1: So first off, can someone please explain to me is there a difference between pharmacology and psychopharmacology?
2: Yeah, the psycho prefix refers to psychoactive drugs or drugs that impact the central nervous system. So there's pharmacology of drugs that have no psychoactivity, like you know at least hypothetically an anti-malarial drug or a drug that treats diabetes. You know any any chemical that has an effect on the human body has some kind of a pharmacology. But psychopharmacology is the sub-discipline dedicated to drugs that impact the human mind.
1: So we're talking about psychopharmacology.
2: And that and, and to be clear, that is not just psychedelics. That's antidepressants, um, stimulants, sedatives, right. really any drug that has some effect on the human mind.
0: But yeah. you'll know how
2: to but have effect on I believe it's things that have
3: effect on purely, this is from you know, spending time with Stephen Ross and uh, Dennis, it's psychopharmacology to what I've always understood to be like mood, sensation, thinking, and behavior, versus the broader. So yes.
1: So Hamilton, how did you get interested in this?
2: Uh, I've, you know, I've, I've, attacked it from a few different angles. I studied it in school. I've done a lot of, you know, lab work related to the chemistry of psychedelic drugs and I'm not doing it now, but I've continued up until pretty recently to do scientific research. And then obviously a lot of uh, like, television slash journalism slash documentary filmmaking work with it and uh and have written about it as well so i've been interested in it from a few different angles and i think it's it's pretty fascinating i've always been interested in
1: it people haven't seen your show you basically make yourself sort of the human lab rat
2: uh, it's an extremely small part of the show, but that's what people tend to remember. Because people paid so much, they're so in awe of even consuming like a common drug that they themselves have consumed that it's like the only thing that they say about it. Like I could travel to some incredibly exotic place that no one has ever seen before, but they'll be more impressed by me consuming a mushroom that they themselves have tried, which I always find strange. But yeah, it's a small part of my show that uh, the people are definitely impressed by more so than I think they should be. But yes, I do occasionally try them.
1: Well, I, I watched the uh, frog episodes, the three-parter on, on the frogs.
2: I did uh, a thing with a, a thing. frog, you, yeah.
1: You went on this journey that I would have absolutely killed myself. First of all, three days on a boat. That's mm. the size of a, a large canoe. And mm. then, I mean, I'm assuming you were raised in New York, correct?
2: Uh, I was born there and lived there as a young child, but I was raised mostly in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: Same idea. So, you know, yeah. you weren't like a super high, let's go get on a boat and go up the Amazon kind of guy. I mean, I totally respected you just for the adventure. Mm. So yeah. you you tried a number of mind-altering drugs. What is, I want to say what is your favorite, but what do you have you found the most fulfilling?
2: You know, these these superlatives relating to psychoactive drugs are just not, I feel like they're not questions I can answer, honestly, because, you know, it's like, what is the craziest drug? What is the best drug? What is the most fulfilling drug? I don't know. I have no idea. They're all interesting. It's like music. You know, what is the best song? Who knows? What is the best food? Who knows? There are things that are good at certain times for certain people in certain ways. I know that's not the best answer to the question, but... It's, a, it's,
4: a, it's an answer, though.
2: It's an answer.
4: It's an honest answer.
2: More recently, I did a piece uh, for an actual TV show that concerned this 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 toad species, Bouffal alvarius, So it is the only species of toad that produces this chemical called 5-MeO-DMT, and It's also found in plants, but in terms of a a concentrated natural source of this chemical, the secretions or venom of this toad are really the most potent source that you can possibly find. So you can directly smoke the fluid that is expressed from the glands of this toad, and it contains very large quantities of 5-MeO-DMT. So it doesn't require any kind of preparation or transformation. As soon as it's dried, it can be smoked. And unlike a sort of even though it is a serotonergic psychedelic and would be called a sort of classical psychedelic, I'd say that it has a very different effect from from something like psilocybin-containing mushrooms or LSD, where you're still often interacting with your environment, you're aware of your friends, the things that surround you. This almost has an effect that could be called dissociative, where you totally exit reality. A lot of people wipe out, myself included. You see nothing. It's, it's almost not a, it doesn't have a lot of the characteristics that people typically associate with a psychedelic. There often are no visual distortions or hallucinations. Um, this is all dose dependent and dependent on the user. But for many people, they just transcend, they dissociate, they enter a, a ego list. If you want to use the term you know, ego loss, I'm not hugely fond of it myself, but it has some value. Um, you, you exit reality in some way completely, and you're not there. To, to an external observer, you are unconscious. You how are-
4: long does it last? And, how, and what if we can't bring you back? I'm not trying to be funny. I'm, I'm really curious. I'm really, right. really curious.
2: Uh, in my own case, it lasted about 15 minutes. That's that's about the standard. I would say it varies from maybe minimum, maybe seven or so minutes to so maximum. Not like
1: people are going to be like, shit. We, he, we did. There's the body. Let's just roll it in the street and hope nobody notices. It. No,
2: no, it would be very frightening to someone that that uh, was not prepared. In fact, when I was much younger, I, I remember in a sort of party environment watching people smoke synthetic five meo DMT, and it was very alarming when somebody lost consciousness because they weren't prepared they, you know, they, they didn't know what they were getting into. No one knew what they were getting into. So they thought, okay, I've tried psilocybin containing mushrooms, or I've tried LSD. So what, how could this be any different? But it is different. It's pharmacologically different. It's experientially different. Um, and, and so if you don't know when you're getting into it, that you will essentially lose consciousness temporarily, uh, it can get you into a lot of trouble. In fact, there was uh, there have been some deaths associated with it, not because it's exceptionally toxic, but because you when you lose consciousness, if, for example, you vomit, you can aspirate on your vomit and, and die that way. So it, it requires um, different sorts of preparation. You need to have somebody who's sober watching over you while you're having the experience. But if you do it responsibly, it seems to be physically very safe for most people.
1: Okay, Brad, we're getting into sort of what we're talking about which I find that you and MAPS are doing is incredible. First of all, what is MAPS?
0: Uh, Thanks, Melissa. Um, Yeah, MAPS is the Nonprofit Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is a mouthful, so we abbreviate it as MAPS. Um, We've been around since 1986 um, doing careful clinical research into the benefits and risks of psychedelics.
1: And one of the things that you have been working on which I think is fascinating, is the use of MDMA with PTSD patients. And you actually just received, what is it, phase three funding from the FDA. Like That's huge. Will you explain what, the, what is happening and what these studies are?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, close. Close. Yeah. We are in, in these phase three clinical trials um, and we are working with the FDA. Um, phase three clinical trials is the last stage of large scale research that the FDA needs to see before they decide whether to approve a drug for legal prescription use. In this case, it would be MDMA.
1: Well, let's explain what is MDMA.
0: Sure, what a lot of people don't Yeah, a lot of people don't don't know what it is and and they confuse it with ecstasy. So MDMA and ecstasy are similar. They have a similar history. Um, Originally, when MDMA first appeared back in the 1970s, 1980s, it was called ecstasy and it was ecstasy, but then it became adulterated on the black market. And now, nowadays, if you go out there and you buy ecstasy or molly or really anything representing itself to be MDMA, most of it doesn't even have any MDMA in it. Um, and it'll have other more harmful things. So it's, it's not quite right to say that this is ecstasy-assisted therapy. More, it's just what's supposed to be in ecstasy, that pure compound.
1: And explain the therapy, because its I read a lot about it. It's truly fascinating. And on the surface, seems to be having a, a very positive effect for people whose lives are literally totally debilitated by post-traumatic stress.
0: That is exactly what we're seeing. You know, There's such a diversity of psychedelic compounds out there, and the history is so confusing. I think a lot of people think that they're illegal because there's been some kind of research process that has deemed them to have no medical use and a high potential for abuse when, in fact, most of them um, or, or all of them were, were placed there. That is, the psychedelics were placed there out of political concerns and, and, and cultural fears. And just now, we're doing the research. So what we're seeing with MDMA now is that combining MDMA with psychotherapy, can help people get at the root of their problems, the root of their traumas, and to, to think about them in different ways um, and to move beyond their PTSD. So, that's very different than what's currently available for PTSD. So, that would be ongoing psychotherapy for months or years or forever, or medication treatments, so antidepressants, SSRIs like Prozac and, 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 and Zoloft. Um, And those would be used, of course, every day for years, and often people still don't don't feel much better. What this MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is doing, or psychedelic-assisted therapy in general, is using the drugs to make the psychotherapy more effective.
1: For what I understand, so it's basically, it's therapy, 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 then one controlled dose in mm-hmm. therapy 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 one controlled dose therapy 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 it takes it's a th- technically a 3 month yep. process
0: that's right that's right that's right so over the entire period of treatment it's 12 weeks so this is what we're looking at in the studies people only receive the drug 3 times they're not taking it every day they're using it in carefully controlled supervised therapeutic settings They have preparatory therapy. So just like what we're talking about with being prepared for this experience. And the difference in the risks and the effectiveness of these things is huge, whether you're prepared versus not prepared. Um, An extreme psychedelic experience can be traumatizing if you're not prepared for it or if you're in the wrong setting. And it can be um, what we're seeing in the research is is extremely helpful and healing if it's done in the right settings.
1: And how do you think you're going to get this? I mean, how long does this phase three trial go on? What's the next step?
0: next step is to complete these phase three trials actually just this week we reported the interim analysis results so that's halfway results of the phase three trial so far
1: and what um, are the results
0: yeah there the Essentially, they showed that they're the best possible. Um, we don't know exactly what the data is. We won't know until the end, but we heard from an independent data committee that we don't need to add any further subjects. So really, the research is going as strong as we can possibly hope it to be going, which means that we're going to be ending the phase three trials by the end of 2021. This first one will end by the end of this year. And because of COVID, uh, the FDA has actually just given us permission to end the study before the 100 participants we need to treat are done. Um, we've we've proposed 90, uh, so we'll see what they say um, in the next few days.
1: David, I want to ask you a, a really basic question because you were the first person who ever told me about microdosing. Okay, I and I see that Hamilton is 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 writing something down. I it confuses me. Hello, I you gotta remember I was like college party girl, but that was it. <laughs> You know, so yeah. all of this, you know, did someone explain? I, I talked to a friend the other day who two weeks ago on a Saturday was like, oh, I microdosed and I cleaned out my sock drawer and I've gone for a walk and I'm in such a good mood. Yeah. What is microdosing?
3: So I, from the standpoint of microdosing, microdosing means many things for the different types of pharmacological drugs. It's taking a very smaller percentage of a full dose of the drug to achieve certain results and they're very different. There are hundreds of cases of cluster headaches that have been solved. Cluster headaches are extremely more painful than a migraine. Um, There are cases where arthritis has been anti-inflammatory from a medical perspective. And by microdosing with just a certain level of psilocybin, you can reduce the swelling in your hands and there are individuals with rheumatoid arthritis. So I think it's a function of the drug that you're taking. And um, again, it varies.
1: Hamilton, what is your experience, especially because you really have come at it from a, an investigative journalist kind of point of view. What have you seen with microdosing?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the, the term microdosing itself is a little bit weird, because when people even talk about psychedelics, usually there's really only two psychedelics that the average person has access to LSD and psilocybin-containing mushrooms. And in the United States, uh, both of those happen to be drugs that no one can dose with any degree of certainty. Psilocybin mushrooms, containing mushrooms because it's a mushroom. So you don't really know how much psilocybin is in it. It's not a homogenous substance. You could blend it into a homogenous powder and have some degree of reliability, but you don't really know. And LSD because it's, First of all, unless you have access to analytical instruments in a lab, you don't even know that you have LSD, let alone the exact potency. People make the uninformed assumption that every blotter contains 100 micrograms of LSD. That's certainly not the case. So It's hard to even know how much of anything you're taking. So When people talk about a microdose, they might not be talking about the same thing. But the the general idea is, what if you could take psychedelics non-psychedelically? What if you could have a psychedelic experience that did something that didn't cause visual distortions, it enhanced creativity, that maybe
0: enhanced empathy or some other function. It's, it's kind of a nebulous thing. A lot of ways psychedelic experiences can feel bad or feel difficult or feel really scary. And we think that um, there's a way with guidance and with integration, um, with support, that those experiences can turn into, into something really good. So for example, if you're seeing your skin and your bones melt away and you're turning into a skeleton and decompose in front of the mirror, you know, that, that could be terrifying. But if you know that this is an experience you're going through, then maybe that's a confrontation with mortality that's useful, you know?
1: Wow. Um, you lost me at the look in the mirror and see your skin melting away. I'm just,
4: that's, that's just me. <laughs> but it could happen. I mean, I go back to what Hamilton was saying, like, you should be with someone that you trust. Um, someone mentioned to me previously about mushrooms, and it was like, for the first time, or when you're, you need to be with someone you trust. Instead of in this, you know, environment that you could have a freak out moment.
2: But but I, I definitely agree with what Brad said, this idea that you should avoid something that might be uncomfortable. Of course, within reason, you know, don't put yourself in an environment that's that's uh, going to cause totally uh, negative anxiety. But you know, for example, I went to West Africa twice this winter and mirrors are actually a huge part of the traditional Iboga ceremony. What, so people what,
1: wait, 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 roll back. I didn't yeah. ceremony.
2: Iboga. So iboga is a a shrub that grows in West Africa and Cameroon and Gabon and, and the DRC. And, uh, and there's a religion. It's a sort of syncretic Christian religion called Bwiti. And in this religion, people consume the roots of this plant, and they have these amazing uh, sort of five-day or even longer sometimes, uh, like dance parties, like religious dance parties where they consume this stuff. And um, and they use it medically, they use it spiritually, they use it socially. It's a really very beautiful religious tradition. And mirrors are a big part of it. So they'll treat sick people, and part of it is looking at themselves in the mirror while they're under the influence of the boga. And this is done intentionally to encourage that sort of potentially uncomfortable confrontation with yourself. If the idea is don't look in a mirror because it could be uncomfortable. Sure, but also if you harness that power and recognize that there's a potential there for some, you know, interesting introspection, then it could be very useful. It's you know, with all these things, you have to first recognize the power and see that a lot of these things that are superficially uncomfortable could be very beneficial if they're approached maturely and with intention.
1: All I'm going to say is, your poor mother. Every time you leave the house or leave the team, must just be like, oh God, is he ever coming back? We'll be back for more on Group Text. Welcome back to Group Text. We are discussing psychopharmacology. Um, I, and this is something, I have a question because I'm on the board of a mental health and suicide prevention group called Dee Dee Hirsch. And David and I have actually had a number of discussions about this, and this is something we've been reading a lot about the studies at Dee Dee Hirsch. Ketamine. Yeah. Uh, you know the idea that it can be used in a situation where someone might be suicidal, and but it has to be a very acute situation for a limited period of time. What are your What are your thoughts on all that? I, David, think, I mean, David, you and I have had endless discussions about I mean, ketamine, and we 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 differ a little.
3: We differ a little. I mean, I, there are I know twelve centers here in California that are actually doing ketamine therapy. Right now, with medical doctors, and
1: medical doctors versus
3: yeah, <laughs> versus versus voodoo doctors or any other type of doctors, <laughs> but uh, they're doing ketamine therapy specifically for individuals who have suicidal tendencies, and uh, there's a list, a long list of people waiting to get in because of the success it's having. And I think either one of the other gentlemen here on this panel can speak to it. Um, and there are some risks, obviously, um, but I, I've heard just tremendous success stories so far. And I've been impressed, and it's, it's really making sure that the complete medical history of the individual going in is understood before they start the therapy, but it, it creates a break. Um, and again, I think whether it's Hamilton or Brad, they could speak to this more, more accurately than
0: I can.
1: What are you guys finding with ketamine?
0: Yeah, uh, ketamine definitely has that abuse potential, um, and you know there's 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 that dependence that can happen, um, and that dependence can happen whether it's being used recreationally or it's being used in therapeutic contexts. So currently, ketamine is the only psychedelic that's FDA approved for the treatment of a mental health condition, um, and that's a ketamine nasal spray or ketamine based nasal spray. Um, and that's developed for the treatment of acute depression sy- symptoms, like you're saying. And in order for it to work, people have to go in and need to have it administered or administer it themselves periodically. So, on an ongoing basis, it seems to work for a few days or a few weeks, and then you have to have it done again. That treatment can be extremely expensive. And if you're getting it off label, so for something other than depression, then you're going to be paying for that out of pocket. It's very expensive, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So what MAPS is really advocating for is for there to be more research into the combination of ketamine with psychotherapy so that ketamine is not just another routine drug that people are taking and they stay on it with all the side effects and dependence that happen, but rather they can use it like MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in conjunction with therapy, so essentially using ketamine to get off of ketamine as quickly as possible.
1: Wow. Hamilton, can can you decipher that for me?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a very exciting thing. People, like Brad said, have been using it off label. That means that because ketamine is a very widely used anesthetic, um, it's by some measures the most widely used anesthetic in the world.
1: So when you say and anesthetic, you mean
2: it's used to. Induce unconsciousness for surgical procedures and in emergency medicine because it's it's very well tolerated by most people. Um, I know that you were kind of talking about the dangers, but really, uh, if there's one thing to be said about ketamine in terms of its acute use, is its safety. That's one reason it's used so frequently because it doesn't uh, depress respiration in any way. People don't have allergic reactions to it, and so you know, in emergency medicine, it's an invaluable tool. So people then realized okay it's not approved for this but it can be used off label for treatment of bipolar and depression and things like that and then last year in May the FDA approved a nasal spray called Spravato that uh, that contrary to many people's beliefs there's always been this idea floating around the psychedelic community that if if the you know government ever approves psychedelic medicines they're going to strip away the psychedelic activity or somehow tame it so that it, it's not truly uh, a visionary substance anymore in this case it was entirely the opposite the Formula that was approved by the FDA is actually more psychedelic than the material that most people are familiar with. It's only one, there's kind of a left and a right hand of the ketamine molecule, and they uh, approve just the highly psychedelic one. So this S enantiomer ketamine is powerfully visionary and people have been having kind of there was sort of a craze when it first came out like a lot of these clinics opened Um, I've been getting a lot of emails recently because so many of them opened that a bunch of them have had to close their doors recently there was a kind of over expansion that occurred so people were very excited because you know The treatment of depression has sort of stagnated in terms of psychiatry for many years. It's been the same stuff for a long time. And then suddenly, last year, the FDA sort of liberalized its standards a little bit and approved two pharmacologically totally new antidepressants, um, both of which are actually anesthetics. So uh, it's one is called allopregnanolone, uh, which is used specifically to treat postpartum depression in women. Which is, I think, it's also the only antidepressant that's ever been approved really for a single gender, Um, and then ketamine. So, so these are are very unusual ways of doing it, and I think for some people works really well. Yes, there is an issue with addiction. There's also an issue with bladder toxicity. There's also, you know, a lot to be said for having this uh, as as a tool in the arsenal for people that are not responding to other medicines.
1: The, the drug that seems to be the one that everybody is talking about and sort of, I would say, slightly obsessed with right now is ayahuasca. <laughs> um, I, you know, people have done it on their TV shows. Chelsea Handler did it on TV. This one's done it on TV. I actually, I think I saw you years ago, Hamilton, mm-hmm. make some vile-looking tea yep. um, <laughs> out, of, like, ugh, out of ayahuasca. What is the point of ayahuasca and all I ever hear is that people are like it's great when you're done throwing up.
3: <laughs>
1: you know, I don't I mean, maybe I'm 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 naive but I don't want to do like I don't get it. Like why would I want to puke and then like woo, you know? <laughs> Hamilton
2: well, you don't have to. I mean, you know, if it sounds it's appealing. a choice. It, yeah, no one's uh, no one's forcing it. But uh, you know, I, I think people, for whatever reason, most people find it vaguely appealing because you actually don't have to throw up. I am on your side. I don't like that stuff either, which is why I usually gravitate toward synthetic substances. When I use ayahuasca, I never use plants. I just use you know isolated synthetic DMT and a pharmaceutical MAOI like maclobamide because I also see no value in being crippled by nausea or fatigue that is caused by some of the beta-carbolines in the ayahuasca vine. So, you know, I, I agree. But but I think what people find appealing is that it's so different from other, uh, other drug experiences, that there's something almost masochistic about it. They like that they're sacrificing. They like that they're leaving their their comfort zone, leaving their, you know, sometimes traveling to another country, going to visit another culture, having this, you know, difficult experience, and then through that difficulty emerging uh, and feeling better for having survived.
1: When you say difficult, what do you mean? Like, it's not fun, like prepare yourself that it's gonna be traumatic?
2: Yeah, I think that's precisely part of it is that it's not fun is that when people think of drug use, they often think of it as being a, a purely hedonistic activity that's about fun and that's about enjoyment and here is something that's being offered that is not about it's more like, you know, a vision quest or something like that where you, you know, fast or go into the desert and you and you survive this hardship and learn about yourself through that difficulty. So, and people find that very appealing. I think that you can actually uh, extract all the benefits without that sort of suffering, but for many people, they, they romanticize the suffering and they uh, integrate the suffering into the experience in a way that's valuable for them.
1: Yeah. Well, suffering for me is a hotel with no room service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: so,
4: it, so are you saying that maybe more of the more plant-based psychedelics have that effect versus something that's more synthetic?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, for example, peyote would be another example. The the experience of consuming explain
1: the peyote to me.
2: Sure. I mean, I have, okay. I
1: have two friends that every year go on some big thing. Not you, David. Two other friends of mine. They always <laughs> go on some big thing and try some random either ayahuasca or peyote, and they did was it the sapo frog, like you. I mean, they've done all of these, and I'm just like. If I'm going to do this and I'm which not, saying, you're
4: not which you're not,
1: not, saying I am, I want to have fun. Mm. Like, I don't want to, I don't feel like, you know, again, I, I, I you know, I don't want to go, I don't need some vision quest.
3: Melissa, I think you are genetically from another planet and you have a gene that is psychedelic in your nature. <laughs> you don't even need to take psychedelic. It's already in you. You don't have to take psychedelic. You're always up, you're laughing and you are grounded. So, I don't think you have to worry about purging or taking any other psychedelics because you don't need them. It's, you you have something in your DNA. Okay, sorry. Hamilton, go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, David. That's the nicest thing anyone said it to me on this podcast, Sabrina.
4: <laughs> <laughs> do do do, do do, do. <laughs> Brad, sorry, you go guys, Hamilton, Brad, go
1: ahead. I actually want to ask Brad. One of the things that you guys really do is use the MDMA to exercise demons.
0: Well, yeah, that's certainly one way to look at it. Um, You know, people have been using these substances in shamanic or spiritual ceremonial contexts for as long as there have been people, as far as we know, and there's a lot in common between the psychotherapists who hold these containers while people are going through psychedelic experiences and the old school shamans. Um, of course, now they're using Western, modern, psychotherapeutic techniques in combination with these substances, but absolutely. And you know, to the point of this not always being fun, um, we've had participants come out of our trials and say, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. You know, people who have never used psychedelics wouldn't, except they're um, you know, trying to look for some solution to their post-traumatic stress disorder. And they come out and they're like, that wasn't fun. I cried for four hours. But it seems to be working for a lot of people. So.
1: Okay, and I will admit that in college I did shroom. I know we don't call it shrooming anymore. First of all, we had it was a whole group of us, and one of our friends had to wear a very obnoxiously bright Hawaiian print shirt called the shroom shirt, and he was like our person. So if you got nervous, you just had to look for the shroom shirt in the crowd and head towards the shirt. That was number one. Number two, I laughed my ass off the entire time. My only weird thing was, and we were at a, a, not a festival, but at a large group experience. I don't want to share where it was
4: because. Why not, Melissa? You're already sharing enough. Okay. It was at Spring Fling at college. Okay.
1: University is going to be real happy that they found out that in 1988, there was a
4: huge group of shroomers at Spring Fling. It'll be okay. They'll still ask for your money, so go ahead with the story. They already asked for my money. I don't think they care if it's
1: painted. Um, And the only weird thing that happened to me was when I would go inside to, like, use the restroom or whatever, I would have to remind myself to breathe because I decided I couldn't, at one point I couldn't breathe inside, so it became, like, this mental, like, (sighs) every time I would go inside to use the restroom, otherwise we're outside. Why was it that I laughed my ass off the whole time. And then we talk about people like my friend, you had the peanut butter screaming person. What happened? What was I just lucky?
0: Depending on your context and depending on who you are, all sorts of different things can come up. You can have demons come up. You can have amazing things come up. We've been focused a lot on the difficult aspects. And that's because MAPS is focused on treating people with just horrific trauma in their past so often that's what's come up when you that's what comes up when you strip away some of these outer layers but if you don't have deeper traumas or sometimes even if you do and they don't come up or you have great support or you're in a great place absolutely Um, it can be an incredible experience of connectedness and making new sense of things and seeing pretty colors and yeah absolutely when it's done right
4: but I mean, basically, uh, my only recommendation would be—you know what, Melissa? Honestly, it's just different experiences for different people. That's what it sounds like to me. Right?
1: How do we, and, you know, and again, going back to the ayahuasca and the vision quest and all of that, how important do you think that is with everything that's going on now to get through all this culturally, in the, in you know, let's say, in a year from now, to maybe exercise the demons of what we've all been living with?
3: I—I'm going to jump in first. I think it's incredibly important. And uh, from an overall global perspective, uh, you know, this, through all this pain, there is a bright light and we need to try to see that bright light. And I think some of these psychedelics that are in front of us can absolutely open up channels and allow for people with their anxiety, their depression, their fears to release those fears and to really step away from those fears in a way where they can embrace this new world. Um and so the medicines are here, whether they're created in a pharmacy or they're plants. These these medicines can help heal, and there's a greater need globally to heal. And these medicines, I think, in general collectively, will elevate consciousness. And I think that's probably one of the greatest things that we need here is to elevate overall consciousness.
1: Brad,
0: uh, well, it's it's clear that you know as a result of this pandemic. There's going to be a lot more people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and trauma in general, even if it doesn't become PTSD. We have all experienced, every single person on this planet has experienced a trauma in this time, and we can all share that. Uh, And some people will develop PTSD, maybe because they lost their jobs or lost their homes or their relationships. Or have had
1: to live with a teenager. Just saying.
0: Had to live with a teenager or had to keep your kids at home during the entire pandemic. The school was canceled. yeah, we've all experienced that. And I think these these treatments, as they're being developed now, um, can help us get through those in the long term.
1: Hamilton, I want to give you the final word on this.
0: On whether what, psychedelics?
2: It, oh, okay. and,
1: and, and what do you feel is the appropriate incorporation of this into society on a, on a, on a very sort of general way?
2: Well, I have a laissez-faire attitude toward all of this. You know, I think that culturally we've needed some kind of framework or justification due to the legacy of the war on drugs. So there was a sort of initial wave where there was a lot of emphasis on the shamanic use of these things and that helped people value them, right? Because that's the first step. It's just to recognize that they're, it's okay and that there's something good to be experienced and maybe they'll even help you under the right circumstances. And then the more recent wave has been Uh, to emphasize the medical use within a sort of conventional uh, psychiatric and pharmaceutical framework. And I think that that will also help. But in the end, I hope that anyone is allowed to do whatever they want, whether it's use it with their friends or, you know, start a business where they make them and sell them that way or start a pharmaceutical company or create a, you know, new therapy based on psychedelics. I would really just hope that people can use psychedelics in all of their diverse potential. And uh, that, that would be ideal. But right now, we're taking it step by step. And also, can I ask you one question? Yeah. I was, a, I was a big fan of, of uh, Joan Rivers. And I even went to see her to stand up when I was in high school. Dude, and what I, was think,
1: her? I think my mom knew, knows, uh, knew your dad.
2: Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that.
1: Yeah. I think.
2: That's funny. Yeah. Um, so what was her take on psychedelics?
1: My mom was not anti-drug. She just did not like them. It's it, She did not ever like feeling out of control uh, at all. That was like a big issue for her, number one. And uh, I remember, I think once in my childhood, knowing that my parents had smoked pot and we were at one of the hotels in Vegas. And in the middle of the night, we all got up. And I don't, I mean, why they took me and broke into the... uh pastry locker at one of the hotels. Years later I figured out why. But my mom was a lightweight, two glasses of wine and she literally, and I'm not joking, face down. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but she was also very, very adamant about using responsibly, whether it was drugs or alcohol. It was like just be responsible. Yeah.
3: But but then again, she also had the same DNA. So she already had. So well,
1: she was also a woman who got pulled over with an, a bottle of wine with a cork in it in her car and did not know that that was an open container because her argument was, it's closed. <laughs> so we're not some, we're talking about someone who is like super up on all this. <laughs> um, this is this has actually been really fascinating. Uh, it's a, definitely a, a topic that really does need to be discussed. I hope we can come back and discuss it some more. And, you know, I firmly believe that there is a a, a good use for drugs, like what they're doing at MAPS, to really help people with trauma and getting through things as long as it's done in a controlled manner. I thank you all so much for joining me. This has been fascinating.
0: Thank you, Melissa, thank you. Thank you.
1: This has been another episode of Group Text.